Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Here at AEI, we've launched a new center on opportunity and social mobility as part of our American Dream initiative. Former AI scholar Kevin Corinth has returned to the Institute to serve as deputy director. In this special episode of Political Economy, I'm sitting down with Kevin to hear more about this new center, as well as his more recent work. Kevin is a senior fellow here at AI. He previously served as a chief economist in the White House's Council of Economic Advisors. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you've returned to AEI after a, uh, a stint. You, uh, you were the uh, chief economist for the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and you were on the uh, Joint Economic Committee from Congress in recent years, but now you're back, and you are serving as deputy director for the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility. Uh, I think if one were to ask, I don't know if the average American, but I think lots of Americans would say both those things opportunity and most social mobility, being able to climb the ladder, maybe people would describe it as, are not what they used to be. Is that sort of intuitive sense correct? Yes, and we agree, and I think that's why we created this center. So I should say Scott Winship, who is at AEI, uh, he is the director. I am the deputy director of this new center. We, we're calling it COSM, C-O-S-M. <laughs> Um, very compelling. Is that, catching, uh, is that catching on? I think it will. I think it will. It'll take some time. Uh, but I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, we've seen a tremendous increase in living standards. People are better off today than they were decades ago. If you look at poverty or just income across the distribution, people are much better off. Um, but there is a sense in which people aren't moving up the distribution as fast as they, they may have before. Um, and there's this other dimension, sort of a social well-being. Even if people are economically better off, uh, they're more isolated in terms of less, uh, uh, less marriage rates, more divorce, uh, less fewer kids, uh, less connection to community organizations and churches, less trust in institutions. And that kind of social poverty has been climbing at an alarming rate. And, and that's almost more worrying um, than any poverty that we're seeing in material terms. So this new center is really both trying to ensure we have economic opportunity for everybody, especially for those groups that have been sort of left behind, uh, but also making sure that we have stronger social connections or social capital, which is what we usually use as a term. At a very simple level, uh, reducing poverty, um, more jobs are helpful. Better paying jobs are helpful. Uh, living standards, again, uh, you know, higher higher incomes, probably faster economic growth would be would be helpful. But all that other stuff you mentioned, I mean, are there like five point plans for each of those things? Do we know how to deal with all these sort of connectedness issues and sort of non monetary quality of life issues? I think we don't know how to deal with them, right. and that's why you have this center. Uh, there's I think you have a lot of people who recognize these issues um, and recognize that they're hard and therefore turn their attention to other things that are easier. A lot of discussion on the left in particular is around sort of a universal basic income for kids, the child tax credit, so-called expansion. Really, that's the elimination of the current child tax credit 
and replacing it with a, a UBI, universal mm-hmm. basic income. Um, and I think some of those views are shaped on the idea that, you know, government isn't really capable of dealing with those deeper issues. The government does know how to write checks pretty well, and we can get cash to people, and that may have some short-term benefits and improving material standards. Uh, but it, it may work against some of these um, bigger social problems. And so I think the center is very ambitious in that regard and that we're saying we do recognize these are problems and we'll study them further and make sure, see what their causes are. And then to think of here is the three point plan of what you can do. Um, There's some things I think you can do on the margin that could matter a bit. Um, One, we have seen a growing disconnection of men from the workforce, Mm -hmm. something that people like Nick Eberstadt have focused on a lot. Um, and is a, a huge problem. Um, you know, we, we should be sure that we're not discouraging work through uh, disability programs that for people who can actually work, getting them instead on the disability role so we can improve those types of things. Um, we can uh, remove marriage penalties and transfer and, and tax policies. Those things might matter a bit. Um, we can take on things like the drug abuse uh, epidemic and make sure it's harder for drugs to get into the country and that people are getting hooked and more lonely and isolated. But, but some of these things are only going to matter on the margin. Um, So I think we need deeper study of those problems and a serious reckoning that these may require big, big things. And and that's focusing on early childhood interventions and making sure kids are brought into a a well-connected community that, that may be, things we need to do. We, we may need to reject things like Head Start that have a poor record of, of success, but there may be other early childhood interventions that can help the, the next generation. So so I think we're keeping a very open mind on um, recognizing the problem, uh, but you know that solutions may come in, in different forms and government may have a role in some of those, but we want to be careful about um, sort of adverse incentives that we're putting right. out there. Framing the issue as some people think that well, government knows how to do something, and that is cut checks. We know how to get the money to the appropriate person at their current address. That we can do well. In a way, to me, that almost seems like the more conservative position, thinking that government doesn't know how to do all these things, so let's focus on what it actually knows how to do, something fairly narrow, uh, it's competent, and stick to that. Well, it almost seems like you're arguing for a far more expansive and activist view of what government can do. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple problems with that view. I agree that there are many on the right, especially more kind of libertarian-minded folks who will make that exact argument and have said, let's replace our current web of programs with something like a universal basic income. As long as, you be, as, long as that basic income isn't sort of an addition, get yeah. rid of all these other, all these other programs, all the, all the bureaucrats, all the other rules, and just keep yeah. it a nice, simple, elegant solution. Yeah, so, so, so one problem with that is that those checks themselves may have uh, problems that make some of these social things worse, um, especially when we think about connection to work um, and marriage. If people are getting this assistance without needing to work for it, we may expect there to be withdrawal from the, the labor market, and that may compound some of the um, disconnection from work that we've seen among men. Um, we may see fewer people saying we need to, to get married um, to support our families. Um, so there can be some some negative effects of that assistance. And I, on the other part, I, I share the sentiment that I 
don't always trust certainly the federal government to address these really deep human I, problems. I mean, that's saying are these all are these all I mean but, uh, are these all Washington solutions? Are they all, are they states, state, local? I mean, I sort of you know went into this thinking, you know, you're this is the center. You're going to have fed. You're going to be advocating for federal policy actions. Are they all federal actions? So no, I, and I think you're you're right. So it wouldn't be all federal solutions. We have state and local governments uh, with varying levels of quality, but. Are a, you know, we have a laboratory for democracy where states try stuff and they're more accountable to the folks on the ground. I know our AEI president, Robert Doerr, speaks quite well of um, some facets of how New York State would uh, provide assistance. And, you know, you'd get the, the check, but you would have caseworkers there um, who would follow up on the individual and help them uh, to make sure they're following through on, on going to those job interviews and staying at work. Um, and then there's also non-government solutions. So even, you know, we're a think tank situated in Washington, D.C., but that doesn't mean we can't recognize that many solutions sit outside of Washington, D.C. or any other state capital. Um, and so to the extent that we we talk about some of these important social problems and whether it's regard to marriage or strong families or having more kids um, or or connecting to one's church or religious organization or community organizations, uh, that conversation, I think, helps move the sort of cultural expectation needle. And those can be part of it, too. So I, I don't suspect that we're out of this center will come a 10.3 or 5 or 10-point plan that some legislature is going to come up and draft a piece of legislation that you can implement tomorrow and poof, these problems will, will disappear. No, but, no department of <laughs> opportunity and social mobility uh, based in Washington, which has a, you know, a $20 billion budget or something like that. I wouldn't be opposed to a department of <laughs> opportunity and social mobility. And you would not be opposed to being secretary, <laughs> secretary of that department. <laughs> uh, but but not, nothing like that kind of budget. And, and if there was one, it, it should not think that it was going to be directing all these activities. Right, right. There is a lot the federal government does that touches – um, these facets of life, and especially low-income Americans. And we want to make sure that that funding is used effectively in a way that's not counterproductive to these goals and, and may push those dollars in that direction. Uh, but any such new bureaucracy right. um, should not have uh, the idea that its own funding and policies are going to be what, what, what addresses these problems holistically. Some of the things that you mentioned, uh, the disconnectedness aspect, um, People, you know, uh, marriage rates, children, um, maybe less connected with local groups. Might that just be a, a preference of 2020 America, where people are like, you know, I, you know, I maybe I just don't, I don't want kids. I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy, um, you know, playing uh, multiplayer online gaming. I'm not disconnected, you know. Uh, that's that, this is utterly my choice and. Gee, and certainly there's a lot of other countries where birth rates are going down. Are all those countries suffering from this ailment? Or is that just sort of how modern society, technologically advanced modern society is everywhere? I think there's something to that. I mean, in some sense, some of this declining sort of social capital or social well-being may be a product of our affluence mm -hmm. now that uh, you may not need um, – to work as much, or or you may not need to to be married um, to support a family. Um, 
you may think that this is a, a choice that people are making, and I, I think there's a lot of truth right that you're to that. confusing a lifestyle choice for a, a, a problem that needs solutions. You're searching for a, a problem for your solutions. No, and I, I completely agree that that there's a lot of truth to that. That people are making choices, um, and they're more able to to make a choice to play video games or be disconnected or watch Netflix. And I watch Netflix too. I I do it with my wife. So I hope that's bringing together family bonding and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But, but the problem's deeper. I I do think that um, there's no problem with using our technology. I love technology and and I hope people use it to entertain themselves and be more productive. Um, But we're losing something a bit deeper than, than just that. Um, We are stronger when we have, strong family systems that we can rely on in times of hardship, if not material, but emotional hardship. Um, And when we have uh, community groups and we feel together with our community and we're producing um, community togetherness, uh, when we trust our institutions, uh, if we become an isolated society, that's very cataclysmic, I think, for the future of our society. And I, I agree this problem is not just a, an America problem. Um, it's other countries too, but I guess all the more important to get at the, the root causes. And, and I should say there, it's not just a, a sense, but we have things like rising uh, people, uh, people dying from drug overdoses and, and suicide. Um, and you could call those choices, but that glosses over the really deep problems that's affecting our society. And without addressing them, we will be weaker, um, not just in terms of being thriving human beings, but it, it would affect our, our economic strength and, and prosperity and creating a more dynamic um, society and economy. I'm just trying to get a sense of sort of the, um, the magnitude <laughs> of the effort you have in front of you. Because if you're, well, I mean, I, I, I sort of know that child birth rates seem to be going down everywhere. And is it probably maybe the same with marriage rates? If they're going down sort of across, you know, wealthy nations, and those nations are in North America, they're in Europe, they're in Asia. So you have very different cultures. Perhaps the only thing they have in common really is the is the technology used and, the, and their incomes. But other than that, these very different cultures, that really speaks as like something core about modernity. And do you think, you know, modifying this tax credit here and billboards, you know, saying that families are great there, that all that together is going to somehow reverse trends, which seem to be very broad. No, (laughs) I don't. Um, I I think the task before us is monumental. It's an enormous, enormous problem. Probably very you may need an intern. Causes. You may need to get a couple we may interns need an to help intern. you. In we that may center. need some more money. <laughs> no, we have plenty. Well, We're well-funded, <laughs> well-supported um, center. And, and but just because the problem's enormous, and just because some of the policies we come up will not be fully comprehensive, or may just get at a piece of it, mm-hmm. this is a defining problem that's causing many of the problems, other problems that we're seeing in the U.S. and in other countries, and it's incumbent on us, I think, to identify those problems and, and to come up with, you may not want to call them full solutions, mm-hmm. but there are governments becoming bigger. Um, we're doing more to support people uh, financially. A lot of that's great. 
Um, but government has important effects on people's lives. Uh, and, and I do think that you can make meaningful differences by changing the way government operates. Again, I, I, I'm not suggesting that those government policies are going to change everything. I'm not saying that just by talking about things like the importance of marriage or family to people, that's going to solve it. But I think these things can matter. And the size of the problem, I think, is what suggests that we should focus on it. And if we have, if we get 10% of the way or 20% of the way, that that's mm-hmm. huge, huge progress. Uh, and, and I think it, it does require our focus. And in our center, we'll, we'll, we'll be taking those problems seriously. And you know, we don't have thousands of people, but we have a lot of great existing scholars at, at AEI um, who are focused on a lot of these things. And that's kind of the fortunate thing about the center is that it, it brings together a lot of um, people thinking about issues like workforce and, and education um, and economic mobility. And, and we're going to draw on that work. Um, are, are, are there, uh, since I'm, you know, I'm talking about, you know, that some of these problems affect a lot of countries. Are, are there countries that are sort of go-to examples of, oh, they have that program. That's something we should consider. People often talk about Scandinavia um, as having these very sort of active labor force participation programs and different kinds of you know, welfare programs. Are there are there obvious programs that maybe you can't tr- necessarily immediately transfer to the United States, but are but are interesting to you and things you'd want to take a closer look at as other governments try to tackle some of these issues? Yeah, that's a fair question. I have to admit my uh, my own studies are, are very U.S. focused, uh, but, but I don't think you have to leave our, our borders, I guess, to think through what's happening. At the state level, we have lots of variation uh, of things that are working and not all government focused. Um, uh, there's lots of, you know, this. there's a center at Notre Dame called the Center, uh, center on Economic Opportunity, um, and, and it focuses on measuring the impacts of interventions uh, to help people. A lot of these problems that we're talking about certainly affect people throughout society, but especially those of, of lower incomes, uh, lower resources. And and so uh, there's things that, have, that can work. I mean, whether it's, there are some early interventions for childhood that have shown improvements, not just in cognitive skills, but non-cognitive skills. It may be hard to scale them up, but that's a start. Um, there's evidence that shows um, even at the high school age that kind of lots of tutoring and high expectations work. Um, there's caseworker models where it's very intensive caseworkers paired with um, someone who's struggling economically that has shown improvement. So, so I, I think that there is evidence that some things work. I, sort of from the macro perspective, I, I, I don't Maybe I need to study other countries more, um, but I, I don't know if there's any country that's just got all this figured out. Probably because this is such a such a, such a structural problem. Um, but but I, I think some of the micro evidence can inform what what what, 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 what can evidence. Work. I like that because it seems to me that many of these problems that sort of the field is dominated by. I guess by by activists promoting programs, and when they get involved, they're there to sort of sell you something. And I would like that all, all the things that you just mentioned, interventions. What I would want to know as a policymaker is what is sort of the the rigorous empirical analysis of how these programs work. It seems to me that getting that is super 
important, and we don't see enough of it um, when looking at all manners of interventions because there's a certain impulse saying that, you know, all interventions, as long as they spend money on things that we want, that that's good enough. And then when it actually comes to sort of analyzing them and analyzing the impacts, it gets a little fuzzy. But I think I would like to have very hard evidence and good models and good testing on these interventions. Is that the kind of thing that's important at this center? Yes. Um, I I think sort of this whole evidence-based policymaking is vital. Um, I will say there's some limits to that. Um, We have, it's, it's hard to gather evidence on, you know, you try one thing and it may work in one place, but when you scale it up, it may not work as well. Um, there's always value judgments about what outcomes you care about. Um, so you can't solely offshore this to the evidence makers, the, the academics who are dry, creating this evidence. Certainly we need to be informed by that evidence, but we need to think carefully about how you create systems that will create those same outcomes that will be informed by the evidence and informed by our value judgments about what matters. If we have disagreements about what outcomes we care about, then we'll pick different policies. So uh, the center will be very informed by evidence of what works, but we need to be very clear about what we're trying to get at, what what our goals are. Can you imagine actually like running studies? Sometimes I hear about these, speaking of UBI, they'll run these kind of small basic income studies. Is that something you might want to do at, at some point? No. And I think that's a great example. That's a great example of the limits of, of these studies. Uh, there are many um, universal basic income studies being conducted throughout the country, some with uh, stimulus uh, money um, that we probably should, shouldn't have provided to the states to the extent that we did. Uh, but there are lots of studies that have been done in the 1970s with negative income tax experiments that are, have been done more recently and are being done right now we're just not going to learn from those experiments what people think we'll learn. Uh, if, if you provide in a study universal basic income payments for, say, six months, two years, that's different than when we have a permanent policy that is going to go on forever, that you could always rely on, and where everyone else in society is getting it too. So you might think if, if it's just an experiment, then your friends and your family are not getting the same thing. Uh, but if we do this on a fully rolled out basis throughout the entire country forever, you would worry about some of the cultural changes that would happen and expectations about what's going to happen. So, so, so that gets at some of the limits of, of these experiments, even though I think in general studies are great and I, I will learn from those things, some things, but you just need to put that in, in context and the limitations. And, and I hope that our center, I mean, we're not going to go out and do hundreds of randomized control trials, but I hope that we're able to put into context some of those studies that are done so that we're thinking intelligently about um, what the implications are uh, of the evidence. Let me finish up with asking you what I like to call an airline passenger question, which is if I sat down next to you uh, as we were taking a flight and I said, so, so what do you do? And you kind of said, I did this and I – you know, I study uh, mobility. I used to do some work on homelessness. I might, oh, that's interesting. What do we do about homelessness? What is your, you know, we, what is your, what is your three to five point plan? Some people, it seems like it's gotten worse. Um, there seems to be a, a lot of attention uh, on the issue right now. Uh, 
what what is since you don't you don't have a three three to five point plan for the uh, mobility and opportunity center? Do you have a three to five point plan about homelessness? Three to five point plans. Check. I know now what my task is. Yeah. So so on homelessness, it's interesting. Um, we have seen homelessness get much much worse in some places, the West Coast in particular, California, um, Oregon, Washington State. Um, New York City's seen some in- increase, uh, but it's not necessarily across the board. Uh, but I will not deny that those places have seen very troubling increases, and especially on the West Coast, people on the streets who are unsheltered, which is really a big problem. Uh, so fortunately, there are some solutions which have a good evidence base and good reason to think that they would, uh, would help. Um, one is homelessness prevention. Um, so if people are sort of at risk of being evicted or otherwise, um, say they're living in a multi-generational household, but they're about to sort of be kicked out of that for some reason, uh, you know, modest payments of say 500 to a thousand dollars can cut in half the, the rate at which people fall into homelessness. We have some good studies from Chicago and New York city on that. So homelessness prevention, number one, uh, number two, uh, you know, once people fall into homelessness, some just need sort of some help to get back into an apartment. There's something called rapid rehousing. You pay for their rent for six months, follow up with some case management, um, and they're oftentimes okay. Um, point number three, and this one's a little more murky, is those first two are, are great. It's going to stop entry into homelessness. It'll put less stress on the system and all the funding that we have. But we do have this problem of people with these severe mental health problems and drug addiction problems who are on the street. And that's really the hard population. Unfortunately, it's really hard to study those people. And so we don't have some magic evidence-based policy that's just ready to go for those people. My sense is you really need to be active in terms of really active outreach, um, saying it's not okay just to, for people to be languishing intense on the sidewalks. Um, I think you need to pair sort of police officers with the social support workers and say, look, you you just can't be on the streets. You need to be in a shelter um, or a supportive housing environment. And, and I think as a society, we just need to be willing to say that. Some people may need to be uh, institutionalized. And until we kind of just make that decision that it's just not okay for people to be on the streets, I, I don't think we're going to solve that part of it. As always, outstanding, Kevin. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you. 